This is from the Dankoroku case 31. Sengchan. Sengchan said to Zen Master Huike, I am riddled with sickness. Please absolve me of my sin. Huike said, Bring me your sins and I will absolve you. After a long pause, Seng Chan said, When I look for my sin, I cannot find it. And Huike said, There, I have absolved you of your sin. You should now live by the Buddha, the teaching, and the community. Good morning, everyone, here on Zoom. It's good to be here. It's good to be back again and again to realize what a difference it makes to actually be back in person, sense each other's energy, go back to aspects of practice that uh, we were not able to maintain for quite a long time. Go back to appreciating how powerful those aspects are. How encouraging they are for our practice. Traditional Zen practice has an underlying essence that can be found at every temple, monastery, or training center, regardless of the lineage or tradition. And yet each Sangha expresses this essence in unique ways that pertain to location, circumstances, the culture it functions within, and the teaching style of the main teacher. In our case, being a non-monastic Sangha, we tend to emphasize a seamless integration between what we call formal practice and what we consider everyday life, as it manifests at home, work, or wherever we happen to be. And as part of our formal practice, we hold two ongo training periods a year, which serves a very important role in deepening our practice and developing a better understanding of the tradition. However, the periods between ongo are not less important. And although there is clearly a sense of loosening up the intensity level after three months of an ango. It's very important that we know how to sustain our practice and keep it alive so it doesn't fall apart when we loosen up the intensity. In terms of the deepening process, knowing how to practice while on a break or during unstructured periods is as vital as structured and intensified periods. The barrier between them only exists in the mind, and when we look at that barrier, how it develops, how it forms in the mind, we can learn how picking and choosing dominates our lives and leads to much unhappiness and discontentment. The challenge of integrating formal practice and everyday life is actually not as complicated as we may think or experience. There are two compartments in our mind, 
One is what we may call practice. The other one is what we may call everything else. Or there may be 10 or 15 compartments. But we have to examine. We have to look at what forms the barriers, the walls, that seem to be so real. And although some aspects of the tradition may seem arcane or irrelevant to our lives in the 21st century, they deal directly with two essential aspects of life that every human being is facing. Every human being is facing. Impermanence and karma. Those are not Buddhist ideas. If we understand that the practice is essentially pointing to what we cannot escape, then tightening and loosening can be used effectively as skillful means on the path of liberation. In fact, everything can be used effectively, skillfully, for deepening our understanding. And during this non-ango period of summer, Somehow I find myself gravitated to the origin of the Zen tradition, exploring Bodhidharma's teaching, fundamental teachings, and the way they have been passed on to successive Dharma teachers. So the last Teisho was about Huike, who succeeded to Bodhidharma, and this koan brought up today is about Seng Tsan, who succeeded to Huike, becoming the third patriarch of Zen. It is important that we look back at the origin of the tradition and we see, we understand the connection. Otherwise, it will remain arcane, something that happened, something that may or may not be relevant to our lives. The details of Seng Tsang's life are mostly obscure since he lived during the 6th century when Buddhism was suppressed and, pers and persecuted by the Chinese government. And Seng San was forced to flee to the mountains and live in seclusion for about 10 years after he officially became the third patriarch. <coughs> there aren't many known details from Seng San's life, but we do know a little bit about his first meeting with Huike. His meeting with, the, with his main student, Dao Jin, and of course, the poem titled Trust in Mind, or Xinjin Mei, which is attributed to Seng Tsang and is one of the most revered texts in the Zen tradition. It's in our sutra book, and it was also the subject of a Teisho from earlier this year. So when Seng Tsang first went to see Huike, he was suffering from leprosy. And he strongly believed that the disease appeared in his body as a result of wrongdoings or sins he has committed in the past. Now, whether he was referring to his own lifetime or past lives is not relevant to the point this koan is raising. What's important to examine is our understanding of karma as an integrated part of our lives as human beings. How do we deal with the fact that there are internal karmic streams in all of us? All of us individually and collectively, as a nation, a society? How do we deal with our own conditioning that inevitably affects 
our thinking patterns, our actions, our speech. In order to arrive at any measure of freedom, we need to become aware of the workings of karma, understand the ways it operates, and learn to be at peace with it. At peace with what was, and at peace with the way what was is manifesting in our lives today. At peace with all of it. Not picking and choosing what we will be at peace with. Or what we choose to fight. And karma is an essential aspect of Buddhist teaching simply because it's an essential aspect of our lives. Actually, it's the case with all Buddhist teachings. It's not a teaching to pick up or drop away. It comes down, as I think I mentioned last time, to whether or not we want to live our lives with our head in the sand. That sums it up. So if we choose to not practice, it's the same as choosing to live with the head in the sand. And in the case, as in the case of all Buddhist teachings, the imperative is to study things as they are and to merge with what is so we can live well and function together in a way that lessens harm and promotes healing on a small and large scale. The word karma, as many of you have heard before, means action or causation action, which in terms of our existence as human beings means the inviolable law of causation, or in other words, everything that happened up to this point is affecting what is happening now. And everything that is happening now will affect, will have an effect on what will happen later. No one is outside of that. No one can operate as if those laws do not pertain to them. That's the illusion, or one of the ways we create delusion. Nothing, essentially nothing exists unto itself as isolated and a separate entity. We believe that when we close the door. We believe that. And what we believe does become a dominating factor in our lives. And karma is also not a system of reward and punishment as it may appear to be. Although we experience it in our lives as fortune and pain, karma is not personal and it's not against or for anyone. And while it is not personal, it is deeply affecting every aspect of life. And Buddhism speaks of three kinds of karma. Karma with immediate consequences. You do something, you feel it right away. Karma with delayed consequences. You do something, you feel it later. The later, maybe tomorrow or next year. Immediately, you don't feel anything. So you may keep doing what causes harm because we may not feel the immediate effects of that. But a year later, you check your bank account. Oh, I can trace that back to something I did a year ago. 
And then the third one is karma with consequences that are never seen to us. Not knowing where or why we experience what we experience. Meaning we don't know what led to this. But there it is regardless. And actually this last one means that we will never know how far our actions will reach. One word, one action, one thought. We will never know how many people will be affected by that. In the same way that we don't know what led to this. And that means that our current circumstances are a result of some past actions and decisions we are aware of now. What we are aware of is only the way it manifests, but not what led to that. And it's everything. It's our job, our relationship, financial state, the house we live in, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, what we perpetuate, what we do, what we avoid. All of it. But Bodhidharma said, individuals create karma, karma does not create individuals. That's the folk. That's the right understanding of karma. We create karma, karma does not create us. I am the one who has created harmful karma, and I'm the one who has to deal with the consequences of my past actions. But as long as I do not see that the harmful karma does not create me, I will keep perpetuating the same harm and remain on the same trajectory. Naturally, logically. And that's the point of freedom, or that's the, the gateway of realizing that while it is true that I'm dealing with effects of what happened before, it is not creating the one who is going through that unless I believe it to be so unless I tell myself and others that that's how it is then yes it becomes that I become it and if we want to change that trajectory we need to take the responsibility to examine the way we meet the consequences of past words and actions and move in a different direction. Or sometimes not move. Karma produces a very powerful energy. And often it is much easier to just follow along even when we realize that we are stuck. Even when we realize that this, I should not be doing this. Yet I find myself gravitated to doing this. Buddha said that we have to realize that we are a stuck axle wheel. We are stuck. And this is how we get stuck. So to go in different direction feels counterintuitive quite often. And so we need to go against the grain if we want to grow spiritually. That's why practice can feel difficult and challenging. 
That's why sometimes instructions that pertain to practice seem like something we want to reject. And then come into that with justification of why I'm rejecting this. And it makes sense to reject. But we have to accept it. Bodhidharma said, when those who search for the path encounter adversity, they should think to themselves, in countless ages gone by, I have turned from the essential to the trivial and wandered through all manner of existence. I went from the real to what is false. Not knowing that I did so. Turned from the essential trivial and wandered through all manner of existence, often angry without cause and guilty of numberless transgressions. Now, though I do no wrong, I am punished by my past. Neither gods nor men can foresee when an evil deed will bear its fruit. I escape it, sorry, I accept it with an open heart and without complaint of injustice. The Sutra says, when you meet with adversity, do not be upset because it makes sense. With such an understanding, you are in harmony with reason, and by suffering injustice, you enter the path. And that means by accepting, by not fighting it, by not complaining about it, by not creating more of the same. That's how we enter the path. Or well, that's how the path becomes available. So Seng San went to see Huike with a strong belief that he is held back by his karma. And so he said, I am riddled with sickness. Please absolve me of my sin. And Huike said, okay, bring me your sin and I will absolve you. As you remember from the last Teisho, the first encounter between Bodhidharma and Huike, he said, my mind is not at peace. Huike said to Bodhidharma, please put it to rest for me. And Bodhidharma said, okay, go bring me your mind and I will put it to rest for you. And in this case, Huike is using the same teaching to guide Seng San to examine the assumption that he is indeed held back. That he's not free. Our conditioned thought patterns and beliefs can have extremely powerful grip on the way we meet this moment. And they can obscure and confuse our ability to see clearly to a point of blinding us to the freedom each moment offers. Or in other words, what we see is mostly our conditioned thought patterns, opinions, and beliefs. And like a broken record that keeps playing the same tune over and over again. And it's not uncommon to find ourselves complaining about others who are stuck in repetitive stories. We hear it a lot. But it may be more beneficial to turn it around and take a close look at our own stuckness at our own repetitive patterns 
at our own causing harm. And at the stories we have become identified with. But then again, who am I without these stories? Do I know? When I put the stories aside, all of it and I look for myself what do I find what do you find when you sit down and meditate and put aside everything you know about yourself everything you know about the world you allow the mind to go without following it without producing more thoughts out of thoughts, then who are you? Scary. Scary. That's why we run back to thoughts. It's the binky, the pacifier that we suck on. We find comfort in who we think we are. So only when we begin to doubt the thoughts and beliefs that make up the personal story, only then we can begin to open up to the possibility that we are much greater than what we can ever perceive. But we have to, as we do on a daily basis, put it aside and sit and practice zazen. It's not a chore, although it can appear like that to the thinking mind, of course. It's actually oxygen. Without sitting, we become so dense, so uptight, so convinced that we know. Pretty much like aerating the soil if you want to plant something in it. If the soil is not aerated, it becomes dense. Water doesn't penetrate, the plant will die. We are often living dead, walking around, repeating the same thing over and over and over again. Is that living? Sometimes people ask, when I go on vacation, should I take a break from sitting? From breathing, from eating, from what? Take a break and do what? So we have to watch how we how we function, how we maintain the practice, what does it mean to keep the process of observation alive? What does it mean to keep aerating our lives? What does it mean to turn back to the essential on a moment-by-moment -moment basis? Whether it's ango in between ango, whether we're on vacation or in an intensified period, 
of Zazen. Or Zazenkai. What is seamlessness? What is practice? So after Huike said, go bring me your sins, Seng San paused for a while. And then he said, when I look for my sin, I cannot find it. Huike said, there, I have absolved you of your sin. You should now live by the Buddha, the teaching, and the community. The text doesn't say whether Seng San had a realization experience at that moment or what took place after that. As far as we know, he spent a number of years studying with Huike before becoming his Dharma heir. But what is clear is that Seng Tsang chose to trust the spark in him which brought him to see Huike or seek the Dharma. And by following this spark, he nourished or nurtured the seed of wisdom and took away nourishment from the seed of delusion, which is again and again what we do, we need to be doing in Zazen. Take away nourishment from delusion and nurture the seed of wisdom or the sacred fetus as it is sometimes referred to. He chose to nurture the way-seeking mind, bodhicitta in him, a pulsating energy that when given the right nutrients and conditions begins to awaken to itself. And it's a journey from trusting who we believe to be to trusting what we are intrinsically. In all aspects of practice are nothing but that nutrient, the essential nutrient that bodhicitta requires. Nurturing the sacred fetus. Do we take breaks from that? And when we take breaks from that, what do we nurture? Back to karma. Most people don't realize how deeply our karma is embedded into our thought patterns, into our actions, and how identified we are with the way it manifests in our lives. It affects our, the decisions we make, what we do, what we avoid, the way we interact with others, it manifests in our fears, our regrets, our aspirations, and even the way we listen to this talk, even the way the mind is interpreting this very talk. That is also influenced by karma. This is why we say when we listen to a Teisho, as in Zazen, we put aside norms, we put aside everything we have become identified with to the best of our ability at that moment. And we don't listen with the mind, we listen with the heart or heart mind, kokoro. We listen with the entire body. The entire body becomes an ear. Then what do we hear? Then I am not talking and you are not listening. 
then the words echo in your gut, in your center. And it, it becomes not about what is being said, it becomes about what is being awakened in you. All a teacher can do is point. So we can either look or ignore. And since karma is so familiar, naturally it becomes interlaced into our intricate story and our personality in terms of who we think we are. But as persistent and as tenacious it can be, and our conditioning as well, we are, we are doomed to remain in the grip of it for the rest of our lives if we don't look at it. To do that, to examine that, it takes a great deal of determination and to change the course of our cyclical and habitual patterns, we need to look at it on a daily basis or look at the way it manifests in us on a daily basis. Yin Shun says, karma is the residual force of actions. Whether actions are good or bad, they depend mainly on the mind. Thus, the presence of exceptionally strong wisdom or resolution can cause karma to change. Karma means what is possible, not what is predetermined. Hence, it can be transformed. Thus, Buddhism stresses past karma, but does not fall into the doctrine of fatalism. In other words, we are not doomed. Although often it may feel this way. As we may want to do something else, finding ourselves again and again, in the same chasing our tail kind of patterns. And this, is, this statement is very encouraging, but it may or may not become the experience of our lives or of our living reality. At any given moment, we are presented with two ways to meet living reality. The first one seems more immediate, tempting and comforting to us. It is most natural and it keeps us feeling secure within the familiar boundaries of the beaten path we have come to trust. With very little deviations, we go along with our calm extremes and end up repeating the same habitual patterns. Our eyes remain partially closed and life appears to be dull and stale. The second option is the road less traveled. At first it may feel hostile and unfamiliar, so we may want to resist it. It's as if going against the grain, turning away from what we have come to trust and towards what seems shaky and unstructured. It involves having the willingness to speak and act in ways that do not correspond with the habitual calm extremes. And it requires the letting go of putting our trust in what was or what is known. It requires us to fully accept the universal law of causation and the consequences of karma, to fully accept the hardships 
and the joy of living within the bounds of form and to find the freedom by turning towards the fullness of life rather than away from it. And turning to repetitive cyclical patterns is turning away from life, is turning to what was and making what was what is. We make what was what is by turning away from the essential and turning towards the trivial. So when Sengsan went to see Wiki, he was convinced that what happened in the past has the power to hold him back in the present moment. And that the key to his liberation lies in someone else's hand. He trusted the thoughts, emotions, and beliefs that held this story together. And that's the glue that keeps it together. Our thoughts, our emotions, our beliefs, opinions. So this is very much like us, easy to relate to. We put our trust in our thoughts and emotions, in the notion of a fixed self that is vested in our past experiences, in the story of me we keep telling ourselves and others in conventional and societal norms that we believe, we believe, dictate our value and self-worth. We believe, well, we are taught to believe. So that's why we have to go against the grain and shake it up. And with all these fragments of thoughts, emotions, and memories, we build a conceptual structure that seems very real and very convincing. But is it real, is the question. This is the question of our practice. So do we stop asking these questions on Saturdays? Do we want to stop asking this question? Of course we can. This is what Huike is asking Seng San to examine. <laughs> so when Seng San came back with nothing, he said to him, there, now you see for yourself, for yourself, that the notion of being held back is itself the source of feeling bound and trapped. The notion, the thought of being stuck is the source of being stuck. And it is so because you put your trust in it. I trust it. I create it. Oh, I trust what I create. Since you now see this, put your trust in the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And he's not saying, put your trust in the teachings of somebody who founded something. Follow that path. 
That's good for you. Swallow this three times a day. Go to sleep. Wake up in the morning. You're good to go. No. Trust what you are. And the Buddha Dharma Sangha will point at it again and again. Will be the living manifestation of who you are again and again. Well, we're here to reflect that to each other. Now, of course, we reflect that to each other, but we also bring all kinds of stuff with us, which can, be, can seem to be covering our essential nature. So to shift from putting our trust in the conceptual me to the teachings, to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, is a shift from living in accord with habitual karmic streams to living in accord with our true and intrinsic self. And since the streams are very persistent and convincing, it takes a great deal of courage and tenacity to develop the level of awareness that's required to recognize when and how we stray from the path. Close our eyes and go along with the familiar. It takes that, developing a deep, keen sense of awareness. So essentially, we don't end up lying to ourselves and convincing ourselves that we are not lying to ourselves. You know, our fast-paced lives, goal-oriented society, and technological-driven lifestyle creates much restlessness and perpetuates our anxious minds. And in such times, the three treasures can appear to be arcane, irrelevant, or maybe too pious, too religious. Which is why it is so vital that we go beyond the staleness of thought and recognize and appreciate the alive preciousness of our practice. With every prostration, every chant, every zazen period, to appreciate. You know, people don't end up encountering the Dharma by chance. We don't just wake up in the morning and say, well, I'm going to go and check out the Zendo today. Nobody does that. Even if it may appear that way, something happened again and again and again. Things started to shift in that direction to put us at the point of actually finding the Dharma appealing. Because for most people, it's not appealing. I'm sure you know that. I'm sure you talk to friends and family that look at you funny. What are you doing? Are you still doing that thing? That sitting thing? That cult thing? Right? How many times we hear it? How many times we actually may have such, such thoughts? What am I doing here? Where does it come from? Where do these thoughts come from? And what happens when we stay within the shallows of this way of thinking. 
Does it truly bring peace? Does it quell the restlessness? When everything gets quiet and we sit with ourselves, we know. We know what doesn't work. We also know what does. To live by the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha means to exhaustively and continuously study reality, sustain a strong resolve, and trust in our unified hearts. Shift away from our self-centeredness and experience our constant interconnectedness. We have to realize how egocentric we are. And this is not an insult. Although it may sound like that. How can you tell me that I'm selfish? We are selfish. We have to recognize that we are selfish. And we have to go beyond seeing that as an insult. Because it's our selfish nature that gets insulted by being called that. So if we get insulted and turn away and walk away from practice, what do we perpetuate? So to follow the three treasures means to think and act in ways that contribute to the well-being of others. And to take care of others is to take care of us. And it means to avoid doing harm, to practice good, and to actualize goodness for others. Three pure precepts. The three treasures and the three pure precepts. It's all there. Right in front of our eyes. All of it. And at any given moment, we can either walk around with our eyes closed or open the eyes. We have to go against the grain before we can realize that there is no against. Which means we have to feel as if we are, going, we are doing something we don't want to do. And nurture that in us that knows that this is what we need to be doing. So today, tomorrow, the rest of this summer, we need to know how to do nothing when we do nothing. When you sit down and gaze at the ocean or at a mountain or at your family, we're doing nothing, just being. You will see 
if you can get beyond the restlessness that may pull you or tell you to go pick up the computer or the phone, you will feel, you will know. You will know why we practice. You will see why it's so precious. You will understand why the three treasures are considered treasures. And it has nothing to do with the Buddha of many years ago. It has everything to do with you. So please, keep your practice alive at all times and don't sell and buy from yourself to yourself thank you